Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's easy to get lost in the latest true crime podcast. Or your favorite binge-worthy show. But what about your own story? That's the most important story of all. And therapy helps you write it. BetterHelp Therapy is 100% online and designed to be convenient and flexible enough to squeeze in between the next episode on your list. Get started today at BetterHelp.com slash pause for 10% off your first month. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Gabriel Beer Gieselson. Gieselson. There we go. I, I tried. I'm so sorry. I freeze every time. Um, really? Both, both were excellent. I you uh, I was Both were very acceptable. Thank you. I'm so sorry. Uh, but... Gabriel's feature film debut, Attachment, is streaming now on Shutter. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're really excited to chat with you both about your movie and the pick that you brought with you today because oh, I just can't wait. Anyway, uh, <laughs> before we do, I don't want to get too far ahead. Before we do talk about your choice of movie, let's uh, let's take it to um, your your debut film, Attachment. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the film? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's my first feature. It is a Danish production, although it's mostly in English. It is about two women who uh, have like a meet cute and fall in love in Copenhagen. Um, one of them is a Danish washed up actor. And the other one is a sort of visiting academic. Uh, and they fall in love very quickly and have a whirlwind romance. Uh, and then when the English academic has a mysterious seizure and an accident, uh, she has to return back to London where she's from. And, uh, the Danish, uh, actor and our lead, uh, decides to follow her and uh, to follow love to London. And, uh, there she meets her new downstairs neighbor who turns out to be her girlfriend's seemingly very religious Jewish mom. Uh, and, the mom is not the friendliest 
person on the world tour. Um, and when she starts noticing weird stuff happening at night, she starts to suspect that the mom is up to no good. And then a variety of things ensue. A variety of things ensue. <laughs> so how did you, cause you also wrote this. How did you come up with this idea? Cause um, yeah. you're tackling like um, Jewish traditions as well as a queer romance. And I remember when I first watched this movie, I was like, Oh, I love how this is starting. Cause it's basically, a queer romantic comedy that ends up finding supernatural in a way. And yeah. so I'm curious, I'm curious how you came up with this idea or what, what led you it, to it? It was sort of just like a, like a confluence of different like ideas I had going on in my head, um, mixed with some real life stories that Josephine, who plays the lead Maya told me. So uh-huh. basically, um, sort of in the time leading up to me writing it, so I'd had this sort of like desire to make a kind of irreverent Jewish horror movie. Like okay. I'd seen, cause I'd grown up seeing all these, um, these great horror films that kind of drew on certain kind of like Christian ideas. I mean, arguably you could say that like Dracula, which we'll touch on later does that too. Right. But like, you know, I mean, so the obvious picks are things like the exorcist or the omen, like that were both really freaky and really spooky, but also had a kind of playful relationship with the religions that they were working with. And like, you know, they would sort of take the parts that, that worked for the story and then they would discard the things that didn't and kind of fill in the blanks themselves. And it was just a kind of that, that playful relationship to the traditions. I wanted to see someone do with Judaism because, you know, I'd seen a lot of like, obviously there's a lot of Jewish comedies. There's a lot of Jewish films that have a lot sort of a great reverence towards the traditions and some kind of educational aspirations, which I think are great. But also I wanted to see someone who just kind of like, fucked around a bit and had a bit of fun with it because there's mm-hmm. also a lot of that in Jewish tradition and in the horror space because the horror space is I think again as we'll maybe touch on really hospitable for fun and playing around as well um, but all that said even though I felt like there was this, like this really deep bench of just like mythological beings to draw from I didn't have any like specific story to kind of latch it onto so it was more just like a like a mood or a world I wanted to be in okay and then independently of that Josephine, who plays the lead, is one of my closest friends, and we've been friends since high school. Where we, uh, oh, wow. yeah, we used to make really terrible theater together, including uh, <laughs> we wrote uh, when we were like fifteen or sixteen. We like we and some of our friends wrote and produced this play that was like Shakespeare mixed with Survivor, mixed with like X Factor or something, or like whatever. Like was the oh. like the, it is. Uh, one of the worst things ever made. Like, I, I can't even conceive of how we thought of something that bad. But like, anyway, it sounds amazing. Honestly, obsessed. I mean, I mean, it was. I'm sure it wasn't its own right kind of amazing, but it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but anyways, so we used to do. We used to like do a bunch of fun stuff like that. And then she went off to go to drama school. I, after a while, decided to pursue film and went to film school. And then as she was finishing drama school and I was wrapping up film school, we went out uh, and got super wasted. <laughs> and then she uh, told me these stories because I've been living in New York and London for a while and she'd been in Denmark. So I'd like missed a couple of her girlfriends while I've been away. And she told me about one girlfriend. And one of the reasons I'd missed her was that they'd kind of had like a, a bad breakup, um, her and her ex. And that was because that like they'd both been between apartments. And the ex had been like, oh, you know, my mom has lots of room. We could just move in with her for a bit, just for like a month, and it'll be chill. Oh no! And she did, and it was not. I at love, all. <laughs> I love que- like women, women. Not to say like queer couples and U-Haul lesbians. Not to like ascribe that to Josephine, but are my fucking favorite. Like just making <laughs> the best decisions that are definitely not going to lead to disaster. <laughs> 
Exactly. And then when you told me the story, I was like, wow, you were like walking right into a moving train, weren't you? Like, that is, that is crazy. And then she told me these stories and it was just, they were so funny and so over the top. And like, we were, you know, again, completely fucked up. And I was like, I am going to write you a film. <laughs> and uh, it shall be a huge hit and you shall be a star and you shall thank me later <laughs> and, uh, and, and Josephine did very much become a star with like none of my work because I was still writing this movie while she became a star um, but anyway so like that that seems so funny to me but again this was like weird things like there was like a premise but it was like looking for a story and then the Jewish thing started kind of scratching in the back of my head and I was like oh you know like there's that there's that whole sort of the trope of the Jewish mom and the stereotype of how the Jewish mom is super overbearing and super domineering and there's always this weird feeling underneath it all that like it's all a matter of life or death and I was like right. oh, okay but what if you made a movie where like it kind of is all about life it or kind death of is. like and like that's the that's like that's the whole that's like the shtick of it is like all of these tropes are actually founded in something really deep and dark. And when that clicked into place, then that structure with those three women in the house, like while the specific stories that Josephine told me didn't really work because it didn't really work with the Jewishness of it all, the mm -hmm. idea of the three of them stuck in this building together just really worked well as a way of exploring that. And so somehow all of those threads kind of came together and I started writing what became Attachment. Wow. <laughs> That's so wild that it's like quasi inspired by yeah. true events. I won't yeah. say a true story, but... <laughs> Well, and I, and I think to this, wow. I think to this day, like Josephine is pretty relieved that I took out the specifics because she, like, I think otherwise she'd be getting like angry texts from her ex and the mom <laughs> about, like, you know, like now, you know, they don't, you know, they don't really know that it's them necessarily. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, you also have um, Sophie Grabol, I believe, is mm -hmm. her, like in this film, and I love her. What was it like working with her and having her as part of mm. the film as the as like the quote unquote crazy mom? Well, so she, so I. I actually, um, I've known her for most of my life because I grew up in the Danish film industry. Um, oh, both shit. my parents cool. are in film. Uh, so I knew her, I've known her since I was a kid. She actually would, uh, uh, she would, uh, she, she like read stories to me to get me to fall asleep a couple of times when I was growing oh, up. And, wow. uh, as a bit on set, she would sometimes yell out, instead of yelling out my name across the set, she would yell out like the Danish equivalent of sweetie. Just to kind of like, <laughs> but to kind of like, like, like to like mess with me a bit, but also I found it yeah. quite cute. It was, um, so, so in terms of like, I already had a prior relationship with Sophie, but I'd never worked with her. Um, um, but I, I wrote the part with her in mind, not because we knew each other, but because I wanted to make sure basically I wanted this character to be really inscrutable and really hard to place. Mm -hmm. And for that, I needed someone who like, even when they play really kind of like complicated or difficult or unpleasant characters. I needed someone who always had this like really deep sense of humanity. And that Sophie has in like everything she does. Cause they're great other, there are other great uh, actresses of Sophie's generation, but I had this feeling like, Oh, they will either be like, Oh, they will be too mean. Like it will be too transparent that there's, there's something else going on or they will be like too, they're not going to nail that like, awfulness that needs to be at other times and that's going to be hard to kind of get the balance right and with her i just feel yeah. like no matter how annoying or difficult or frustrating or or outright unpleasant i made her she would have this real kind of inner inner humanity to her and so i wrote the role was specifically with her in mind and then fortunately she said yes and then i think she just had a ton of fun because she'd never actually gotten to play someone who was that 
like awful at times as she is like so she got to really relish like you know there's a bit of scenery oh, chewing yeah. going on and she really got to really enjoy that yeah hell yeah and we just had we just had a blast and actually i'm writing a film with her in the lead at the moment like another danish film specifically Ooh. for her because we had so much fun work together that's amazing that's so cool she's so good in this she yeah is. She's, i think she's i mean she's incredible in it really i'm not i'm like it's a I'm not trying to pat my own like she's just she just does an no. amazing job in it. <laughs> to also hear about where you find the locations because i mean most of this takes place at least like the back half slash a little bit more than that takes place in the one mm-hmm. apartment essentially how did you find that apartment or is it a, an amalgamation of apartments like what how did you find that location because i love the way a, it's set up quite the anecdote attached to that oh. uh, no pun intended um <laughs> so basically originally we wanted to shoot all the london stuff in london yeah. And then, like, it started feeling like, okay, that's actually going to be tricky on this budget because it's a pretty low-budget movie, and it's made... The Danish Film Institute has a, a, a first-feature scheme, which is, like, for people who have finished film school, it's like, oh. all right, apply to it and let, let's help you make a first feature and get off the ground, which is this amazing thing. And that's cool. it also doesn't come with a lot of money for good reason, and they don't, again, for good reason, let people do co-productions on it because they want to keep the playing field even so that if you have a project, like they want every, they want everyone to have sort of an equal opportunity with that first feature. It's very mm-hmm. Scandinavian and social democratic, and I'm all for it. Hey, uh, love that shit, though. Uh, absolutely. I, there's not, I, I entirely genuinely think it's pretty amazing. It was, uh, I went to film school in the U.S., and I very quickly decided that the first thing I would do when I finished was go home and apply for this fund. Uh, are you a so, citizen? Not to like, be weird, but like, are you a no, citizen? Oh, you're no, a no, 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 are you I'm, Danish? I'm, yeah, born and raised Danish, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, I, yeah. But I lived I lived in London and New York throughout the entirety of my 20s. And then, oh, okay, cool. long story, wound up back in Copenhagen. And now I'm sort of between Copenhagen and Vancouver at the moment. All along, complicated story. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <Yeah. laughs> Derailed the question. Uh, so, But anyway, so because of these kind of like somewhat limited uh, funds, London was already seeming a bit dicey. And then when COVID hit, it was like, okay, well, we're just not going to London. Um but the the thing was that like because it's drawing on these things from like Yiddish folklore and Yiddish tradition, it still kind of needed to be set in a Hasidic environment, sort of fit right. with the world. And there just isn't one in Copenhagen. So and so you know, I still had to choose like it still had to be set in a city that had that community. And I wanted to be set in a city that I knew, so it would either be London or New York, because those are the only two cities I've lived in that had this community. So we said, okay, we'll do London all the same, but we'll We'll do like a day or two of exteriors. We can just about afford that. And then we'll do uh, all the interiors. We'll find a house in Denmark that can double as a London house and we'll make that work. Okay. So me and the production designer who has also lived in London for a long time, we go searching for it. And we it takes us forever. And finally, very, very close to production, we find a house. And it just about works. Like it's not perfect. But it's with enough kind of finagling, we can make it work. And we spend the most of our pre-production, which is, you know, it's like really priceless time that you have, uh, figuring out how exactly to swing it. And then two and a half weeks before we go on set, the homeowner calls us and says that she's just discovered that we're making a horror film. And so we cannot shoot in her house because, and she means this seriously, she's worried that we will curse her home. Oh, yeah. Like, so I, I mean, obviously I've promptly go and curse her home out of spite and then go back to the production <laughs> yeah. offices. Uh, but, uh, but, wow. um, but, but we're screwed. And so, uh, Holy because shit. we have no other option and we're about to go on set, like in two and a half weeks with what little bit of money we have left in the budget, 
the production design team manages to build the whole thing in a studio in two and a half weeks. No. Really? So everything, what? Everything in those London apartments is on a studio. And it was so it was so last minute that the first day we showed up to shoot in them, um, there were still like cracks in the walls where the lights were flooding in through. <laughs> we they were like kind of like quickly patching them up because they just had to. I mean, what they did was amazing, but they had to do it in no time. Holy shit! Wait, that yeah. is so fucking impressive and terrifying. So, it really is making movies and is terrifying. <laughs> it is. It was. I mean, I that that those two weeks alone probably shaved off about seven years of my life. Like. <laughs> Uh, I can imagine. It was, it was crazy. And and it was stuff like, you know, it was still they I I'm so impressed with what they did, and we're still doing it on such so cheap. Like we couldn't afford windows. We just like we managed to scrounge like one stained glass window. And which means that every time we had to turn the camera in the hallway, we had to move the windows. And we'd like turn the camera, like, someone get the window, someone get the window, or like move the window back there. Oh my god. There's, like, one, there's one front door that we would move like up and down the steps. <laughs> That's um, fucking amazing. It oh was God. it was nuts. It was such a crazy time. But yeah, so anyway, that so in terms of how I pick locations, basically through sheer bad luck, I guess is uh, wow. holy cow. Yeah. Sorry, I am glad I asked though, because that is really yeah, yeah. that's really wow. And I mean, you can't tell watching it. You no. can't tell that you had to carry doors and windows and move around. Holy cow. No, no, no. I mean, fortunately, no one's been able to spot it because they just, I mean, they and the camera and lighting department just did such a good job of working with it. Um, but it was, it was crazy. I mean, it was even to the point where like, the other thing we had to move around was basically they couldn't, have, you know, we, we couldn't afford to build a set like particularly like far up, like it was a very tall set because every bit of material you use to build the walls costs money. Right. But we also couldn't afford um, ceilings. Oh, okay. And that's, and the tricky thing was then if you shoot on a lens that's wider than say a 35 millimeters, then you start seeing over the ceiling. So the best we could do was the, the production design team. I mean, they, these people were just heroes, you know, like not all heroes wear capes, but they sometimes have like, you know, an electric drill. Um, <laughs> like they just built a s- huge square of white fabric and then we would move it around with these like giant sticks. So no. like, okay, we're moving the camera this way now. And they would like move the ceiling like a little bit over so they would cover the top. And it was, yeah. It was uh, it was quite what? the adventure. <laughs> yeah. The the joys of indie filmmaking, huh? Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> Good lord, a lot, a, lot, a lot of stuff to learn on your first feature. Goodness, I mean, it makes you prepared for the next one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, have a ceiling for your next movie. Yeah, 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 no, I definitely plan to have it written into my deal. Like, I insist on having ceilings at all times and more than one door and window. I, I need yeah, to have seen, a seen, fully exactly. furnished home to shoot in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my nuts. goodness. Wow. Wow. So you mentioned that uh, that your parents are in the film industry. Yeah. Is that correct? So yeah. uh, is, is is that how you got interested in film, or how did, how what was your journey yeah. to become a filmmaker? It was, um, and some of this will weirdly tie into Dracula later. Um, so yes, yeah, so I grew up in film. Both my parents are filmmakers. My mom is a fairly well known film director, Culture and Beer. And my dad uh, is an editor and documentarian uh, called Thomas Gieselson. And they were in film, you know, throughout my entire childhood. And so I watched a ton of films with them and I was very exposed to film generally through them. But the third person who, um, well, two things actually. So my dad got his start in the industry as a movie projectionist when he was a teen. And the okay. films, the first films, few films he projected and he would project them over and over again were Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which 
sort of ties into. Uh, yep. So I watched them a lot growing up as well because my dad was obsessed with them. So was his mom, uh, my grandmother, who was like my third parent. She raised me as much as they did, really. Um, and she was obsessed with film. She had nothing to do with film. She was a like she was a public school teacher. But she, she, since she was a kid and like growing up in the forties uh, and being young in the fifties, she just loved movies. And so she showed me a ton of movies growing up, okay. uh, also including all the Mel Brooks movies, but also she, um, she loved MGM musicals. And as a result, so do I now. And I saw, um, I saw singing the rain for the first time when I was seven and I fucked up my shoulder cause I tried to run up the wall like Donald O'Connor does. Oh. And I fell and busted my shoulder in my grandmother's apartment. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, so I grew, I grew up around film, uh, but I don't, I never really, I wasn't necessarily that interested in pursuing it until like my sort of mid twenties or early twenties. Not because I think some people think that way, but because of like a chip on their shoulders thing. I think I was more just like, oh, I've like, I've seen a lot of this stuff. I wonder what else might be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for a while, I thought I was going to try to be a journalist, but I'm notoriously bad at deadlines and uh, that didn't seem to work very well together. Uh, and then I, I wanted to write fiction, so I wrote a number of short stories and tried my hand at a novel, but they are very long. and uh, They sure are. They are very long and difficult to write. And then I wrote some uh, plays, um, not just the aforementioned bad high school plays, but when I was living in London and I was studying English Lit, I wrote some plays that I staged with some friends at like tiny theaters in London. And they were not very good, but I learned a lot from them. And then at a certain point, I think it was like 23 or something, I suddenly had this idea that I was like, oh, this, sh-. I was like, oh, I remember even thinking like, oh shit, I think this is a short film. Fuck. <laughs> I think this might be a short. Uh, and I had really made films before, but again, as a, a Denmark with its wonderful public funding for the arts has a, or at least back then, I think it's slightly more complicated now, but back then it had a specific funding scheme for, for short films, for people who oh, wanted to try okay. to handle a short film where they gave you a bit of money and they had a bunch of equipment for you to, to go out with. And so I wrote a script so and cool. I applied for, yeah, it's great. It's, it's so amazing. I wrote a script and um, put together like a lookbook and applied for the financing. And I got it. And then I made my first short film, which was like a riff on a wedding comedy, um, like a wedding comedy where the bride never shows up. Um, but um, but I made that. And like my first day on set, I had this feeling of like, oh, man, this feels really this kind of feels like home in a way that I had a very hard, like, uh, you know, and this wasn't about like, mm-hmm. it's not like I, I had like a natural knack for it or anything. Like this wasn't a reflection on how good it was because it was the first time I was directing things. So it, I wasn't that good. Um, but there was just something about there was something about like I sort of this I, I understood like the structure and the system of it. And like the language was really it was really nice to speak it, even if I didn't speak it yet fully. And like, right, it felt very Right. And so after making that, like I tried to handle a couple of those shorts and then I applied for, I applied to NYU for their graduate film program. And I got in there and I moved to New York and I did, I went to film school there and, uh, made attachment. And now this, and now I'm here. And that's about here. as far in the journey as I've come. Wow. Oh yeah. So how did you get introduced to horror specifically? Were your, like you said to watch a lot of movies, were your parents at all into horror movies or your grandmother? No, actually they weren't. I mean, they showed me like the class, like stuff like The Shining, right? Or like the sort of the ones that are like, that have sort of like... The benchmarks kind yeah. of. Yeah, exactly. The ones that have sort of transcended into sort of general classics or like that are on mm-hmm. the sort of the movies to watch before you die kind of things. But the sort of the, the, the horror films that I fell in love with, I sort of discovered on my own. I think my, once I was at... My dad, I was, my, my parents were taking me to work a lot. 
And mm-hmm. once my dad was editing something and he would took me to the editing suites and, you know, as a kid, you'd get bored. And so they'd have like, they'd have like little movie screening rooms. And usually there would be some like a very kind patient assistant who would take me, the child, and like, here, is there a movie you'd like to watch? We'll put it on. And in this case, I had like a very undiscriminating one where I pointed to the Army of Darkness, uh, oh. like <laughs> VHS cover, whatever. And I was like, can I watch that? And they're like, sure, whatever. And that I watched was like, Oh, this is sick. And I, then I told my cousin, who was eight years older and, you know, of sort of much more, you know, worldly and wizened man at 17 or 18 or something. Uh, I told him about this crazy movie I, I'd watched. And I was like, oh, well, you should check out the other movies in that series. And then I watched Evil Dead 2 and it like scared the shit out of me. But also I totally fell in love with it. Uh, and when I finally got like, I remember, I think it was, must have been 11 or 12 or something. I spent my allowance on, there's like one, store in Copenhagen that would import US DVDs, like Region 1 DVDs. Okay. Uh, and I went in there and I remember pre-ordering, because they told me it was coming, the steel case version of Evil Dead 2 and like brought that home and it was like my most like like hallowed possession. Uh, and I'd already seen it once and I just like watched it on repeat for days. Uh, and like I think they even later did the same thing with like uh, with Evil Dead 1 where it was like in like a weird like latex like a Necronomicon edition. You'd open it up, oh, and it was a yeah. book with a disc in there. Yep, I had that too. And yeah. if you put that, if you put that book in the fr- in the refrigerator or something, it's supposed to feel like flesh or something weird. Oh, that's what really? They, it was like the marketing Ooh. thing. Yeah. Oh, oh that's amazing. Um, yeah. So I think that was my way in, and then just I think horror in a weird way because I was exposed to so many movies. Like horror was the one genre I kind of got to discover a bit of my own because my parents didn't have a relationship okay. yeah. to it, and there was something I think falling for horror that around that time in like the early 2000s where everyone was just like they were all like pumping out these special edition dvds of various classics and like mm-hmm. so also like i think i i got like i got suspiria the special edition suspiria for my bar mitzvah <laughs> like you know like i was like like you like really kind of just like oh man using every special occasion yeah. to get like some new special edition of some like classic horror film and yes yeah, so that's how I, that's how i got into horror originally and then i think the fact that i was then at film school Around the time of like, I hate the term elevated horror, but you know, sort of whatever, since A24 started sticking a, like putting a sticker in front of a horror movie, you know, like that whole being in film school and being in this place where you're constantly thinking about filmmaking and the mechanics of filmmaking and how it works at a time where the genre is having this kind of huge, big marketed renaissance. renaissance of sorts. Yeah. I think it really made me. Because I got into horror before I decided to make films myself, that was when I started appreciating horror for what it does cinematically. Like, mm-hmm. I really think it is maybe, except for musicals, like My Other Great Love, like the big, the, the, like the most cinematic genre there exists because it has this like reliance on the basic building blocks of cinema, which is like, where is the camera and when? Where's the cut and when? Like, what are we showing you and what are we choosing not to yep. show you? And that is the basics of cinema and i feel like there are a few genres that rely on it as heavily as uh, horror and it was really fun to like think about that while i was in film school and thinking about these things just in general um which is why i think i wound up trying to make a a type of horror film for my first feature so what i'm hearing though is we have horror we have musicals when are we going to get a horror musical from you oh man (laughs) the moment i meet the raging psychopath who will finance it because that is (laughs) That is a dream and also a very expensive dream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But don't worry, it's in, it's in there. Like, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm hoping good. for it. Yeah. <laughs> I am, I'm trying to, like, what, what's the word? Make it happen. What's uh, manifest. Manifest, manifest, manifest it. Manifest yeah, it. Manifest yeah, it. Manifest yeah we're manifesting. It. I, I appreciate it. Here. I think I, I suspect I need all the, like, karmic support I can get for that project to happen. <laughs> 
I'll be there first to buy the ticket because uh, <laughs> musicals, great. horror movies, comedy, like all my ballywick. So I'm I, I'm there I, for that. I feel like it. I feel like it will work together genuinely. I mean, like Phantom of the Paradise is one of my favorite films of all time, and I feel like that is <sighs> a very good yes. example of like. Have it's you seen really Anna good. the Apocalypse? No. Wait. What? Oh my god! It is a zombie musical, and it is so good, and it is like so sweet and funny and it, it's a christmas horror and it's incredible if you love horror musicals you've got to watch in on the apocalypse you gotta watch it okay it's so well, good I, that that is very very much at the top of my list now anna v, the, so anna, v, v, anna and the apocalypse Anna and the apocalypse okay all right well i done all right that sounds wonderful zombies and singing about leaving your small town and all that <laughs> good stuff you know so i I love this. That sounds great. So, but, but now as an adult, what have there, have there been any movies that recently that you've seen that have really scared you? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, Hereditary really, Always. Uh, hell yeah, mess mess me up. Take a drink, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Most people say Hereditary. That one comes up for a lot. Reason. Yeah, I think there's. I mean, I think he really. I think Ari Aster really. There was something so deeply unsettling about it but it's also the way in which like even though it's sort of at once like really gloriously over the top i mean not as much as midsummer's later which i i think i maybe i love even more but i oh, isn't that scary but you know for all it's like kind of there's it's such a wild movie it's still at the same time strangely restrained in how much it holds back yep. from actually freaking you out and then you have that wide shot of the bedroom that night which is just, and it was, I don't know about you guys, I saw it in a packed, I thought, saw it at BAM in New York in a packed movie theater. Yep. And it was this weird thing. It was like, it was quiet. And then someone, <gasps> and then someone, oh my God. And then someone, oh Jesus yep. Christ. And then everyone's yep. like, what's going on? And then you see it and you're like, fuck, 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 fuck. And that, I mean, again, speaking to like, like, you know, how like, how cinematic a genre it is, right? Like that is like, speaks to his specific knowledge of the effect from cutting from one shot size to the next and how he lights it and what you'll look at and where in the frame it's so masterful uh like yeah it's i the think best that... use of light in horror too i think oh, and like shadows yeah. it's just like it's so good it's so good and he's um, just not well like have you his short films are <laughs> wild like and i mean that with respect but like his yeah. short films are unhinged too but i saw one him. of them uh we have a couple of me. I don't. I don't know Ari, but we have a couple of mutual friends, um, and they showed one of them to me before Hereditary came out because they knew him from back in the day. And I was like, "Wow, this is bananas!" Which is the strange the thing the- about the Johnsons, where the son yeah. raised the dad. Yeah, that one. And I saw. It, I was like, <laughs> "Wow, that is nuts!" And also, like, when is this man's first feature coming out? I am very eager well. to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then shortly thereafter, yeah. But I, get, I, I kind of jumped the gun actually a little bit. But so, do you get scared easily? Like, were you scared easily as a yeah. kid? Okay, and you get yeah, scared yeah, easily yeah, now. Yeah. Cool. I, and I get scared easily now. Yeah, yeah. I will sit. I mean, uh, my wife and I went to see Barbarian, and uh, I think in like March or April or something. And she was scared, but she still laughed whenever she turned to look at me because I was sitting like. <laughs> I love like those that. Those first forty-five minutes, I was just like, "You got to be fucking kidding me!" You gotta <laughs> 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 the trademark yeah, no, the I mean, trademark like this trying like to yeah, hide exactly. It. Yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> but for some reason for some reason i've decided like i've decided uh you know 
I realize that this podcast, so I should maybe not just be purely visual, but like, I've decided that there's something far more grown up about just like, you know, holding your hands in front of your face as though you're thinking <laughs> when really you're just fully blocking oh, yeah. out the screen. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely very deep in thought and not terrified of whatever yeah. is going right. to pop this up. This is in not terrifying to me yeah. at all. <laughs> oh, I'm just contemplating the artistic merits of this scene <laughs> entirely, and not at all trying to blot out every single glimmer of light coming from the screen. <laughs> I love it. Um, uh, so yeah, no, no, I get super, I get, I mean, I think that's why also, I, I think that's why I'm into it. I would hate it if, if you stopped getting that feeling of, you know, it's so, it's so physical, right? Like it's mm-hmm. something, it's so rare that any kind of art will give you such an immediate physical feeling. And I would hate to lose that because that's half the half the enjoyment. It's like it's it's watching something and it works. Like sometimes I think even it annoys me if I'm watching something that I think is bad, and just you know, I, I won't mention anything because I always feel like it's bad to badmouth specific titles. But like you know, I've obviously like seen every year you see some shitty horror films, mm-hmm. and it sometimes really annoys me that they still have that effect on me because like ah, this feels cheap and annoyed that I'm unsettled. But when yep. it's good, it's like oh man, like I am. Like, I don't know, to, to, at risk of sounding like an awful art school student, like I am kind of commuting with the work right now, you know, like I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm where there is a real physical relationship between me and the thing I'm seeing. And yeah. there are just few genres that can really do that. I so, agree. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I get really scared and it's part of what I really love about it. Hell yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break and then when we come back, we're going to talk about Gabriel's pick. When you pick up some scratches, cause you want a fun break. The playful way you scratch is the next choice you should make. You can make your dog's leg kick and scratch with that. You could even grab a laser pointer and use your cap. You can build yourself a homemade scratching machine. Or use a piece from your chest set. Go ahead, grab the queen. Scratch like a DJ with your record player. A cactus could scratch off that scratchable layer. Cause when it comes to scratching, there's a million playful ways. Thanks to scratches from the California lottery, a little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase, play, or claim. It's easy to get lost in the latest true crime podcast. Or your favorite binge-worthy show. But what about your own story? That's the most important story of all. And therapy helps you write it. BetterHelp Therapy is 100% online and designed to be convenient and flexible enough to squeeze in between the next episode on your list. Get started today at BetterHelp.com slash pause for 10% off your first month. And we're back! Um, so, okay, Gabriel, what film did you bring with you today for us to discuss? Speaking of terrifying so um in line with um what i was talking about before with my my grandmother and with the sort of history that mel brooks has in my family i picked dracula dead and loving it Uh, and the reason is because i actually think it's the first time i remember being really freaked out by a movie my parents, so my, so I was, I Wait, spent one second, a lot of my, sh- one second, I'm going to read yeah. the synopsis super quick before we jump. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Everybody. This is synopsis, by the way, from, is this IMDb? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A this copy and paste job. Copy and this paste. This is perfect. Um, Dapper Cow Dracula, played by Leslie Nielsen, relocates to, from his Transylvanian castle to Victorian London with his assistant Renfield in search of new blood. He finds it in a pair of beautiful young women, Mina, and her beautiful 
Her best friend, she says, Lucy, when Mina's straight-laced fiancé Jonathan notices his future bride's odd behavior, he calls in his mentor, vampire hunter Van Helsing, to save the day. Uh, <laughs> IMDb. And this is directed by Mel Brooks, everybody. So, like, no, this should you should know what to expect here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so you started a little bit, but take us back. Uh, how did you see this? Why is this your Scarred for Life pick? And why is this really silly horror comedy a movie that traumatized you? So I spent a lot of my childhood staying at my grandmother's house, um, not through any sort of neglect on my parents' part, but just that they were they were busy and fortunate enough to have a grandparent mm-hmm. that really liked taking care of me that much. Um, and one night, my grandmother and I go down to rent a movie together, and she sees this and is like, oh my god, we should rent this, like, because it's Mel Brooks. She loved Mel Brooks. Uh, you know, she went to see... When my dad was projecting them in the 70s, she went to see them over and over again because he'd let her in for free, obviously. Um, <laughs> and and she's like, it's a really funny movie. You're going to love it. I I just have like this distinct recollection of her taking the – I don't know what it was like in the U.S., but in, in Denmark, like you wouldn't have actual VHS boxes. You would have these like little like kind of like plastic covers that you would take down. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember seeing – her taking that down, this like little laminated sheet really. And I was like, okay, that looks kind of scary. And she's like, don't worry. It's not scary. It's funny. Uh, it'll be funny. And so we watch it, and I now, in retrospect, realize that I think at six I would have been. I don't know, like, you get that some things are funny, but I don't know if you get irony, right? Like, I don't know if you fully get that something is is funny because it's not really the thing it's purporting to be or it's pretending to be, which is like yeah. kind of like, it's like a specific, there's this really specific distinction between the two. So we start watching it. And I'm like, I don't know. If, and also, like, it's in English, and I'm not, you know, getting most of it, right? Like, so I'm like, I, I don't know if this is funny, Grandma. And she's like, no, 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 it's funny. And she's laughing at certain stuff and not laughing at others because, you know, I also probably didn't clock – I almost certainly didn't clock at the time. But, like, this isn't Mel Brooks's finest work, I think. But <laughs> I will disagree with you there, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> Let's 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 use a more objective term. Like it's not his most critically lauded work. No, it definitely is not. I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes and it's at eleven percent. Uh yes. Um, um but <laughs> but then like this very specific thing happens where and, like Dracula in, you know, the form of Leslie Nelson shows up and his shadow uh which I think is a either a Dracula or a Nasarata reference or both like crawls towards Peter McNichols character. And I was watching it in preparation for eight. I remember it so distinctly. It freaked me out that I had to leave my grandmother's apartment and run out into the landing. Oh no. And she was like, it's okay. It's okay. Come back. It's okay. See. And then she showed me the bit after where like the, the shadow, I think like kind of falls and hits itself. And I was like, okay, like, I've got that. Oh, was funny. Yeah. But then there's like the scene where these like, you know, women vampires come in and try to, you know, try to suck Peter McNichols' brother. And again, this is meant to be like a sex joke, but uh-huh. I'm six, so it's like a sex joke in a different language. I'm not getting any of this at all. To me, it's just scary. Like, they're in the bed and it looks like they're trying to eat him or something. I run mm-hmm. back on the landing. <laughs> and oh. like, really, it's okay. And we do this dance back and forth throughout <laughs> the entire film. But the thing is, I still laugh at the bits that I get are funny. Like, right. some of them are just, like, really clear physical comedy. And that's, like, I remember distinctly thinking, this is funny. But whenever there was anything, like, just on that knife edge, like, when they're, like, driving the stake through Lucy's heart, oh. there's blood everywhere, freak me the fuck out. Do not get that that's meant to be funny at all. <laughs> like, that is a lot of blood. That is scary. <laughs> what are they doing? Well, and also, like, I'm a 
assuming at the age of six, you had never seen another Dracula movie, like no, understood no. any of the references, like to like as even like the um, uh, Coppola's Dracula jokes that they're yeah. making. Like, there's so many levels of like you said irony and jokes happening that yeah. as a six year old, you're like, this is a moment. fucking to, vampire. I mean, like, it's just <laughs> exactly to the to the point where like I then you know watched uh, Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula when I was like twelve or something or eleven. And I'm like, oh, that was a joke. Oh, okay, I got Ter- it now. Terry had that moment recently, actually, because he only uh-huh. recently saw Bram Stoker's Dracula. I was like, oh my god, right. that's what they're making fun of, and Dracula dead and loving it. I'm like, I love that you saw that before. <laughs> 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 Coppola's Dracula. I, I did. I did. I did this. I did the same thing with. I did the same thing with Young Frankenstein. And the later seeing James Earl's Frankenstein, like I saw them at a really young uh-huh. age, and those I got were comedies because I think it was going to be like eight. Or, you know, it's so funny. Like at that point, like a single year or two years will have a crucial, yeah, like, like, a crucial difference. Um, in sort of your understanding of like layers of humor and irony, but uh, but like I remember seeing that and getting that, and those are like old jokes. But I didn't see James Whale's movies until yeah, thirteen maybe or something like that. And again, I was like, oh, that was the bit. Like that was the like when Peter Boyle sits and like the girl like flies into the pond. Like oh, that was the bit. But they were like, I see. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it really freaked me out. And then it did this weird thing where, like, I guess at some level I must have already then been so, like, into the being scared that, like, a few times I had my parents rent it for me again. And I was still run out at all the scary bits. Yeah. But I think there was something about that, like, endorphin rush of being frightened by something. Even something that now, as an adult, I can see, like, oh, this isn't even remotely supposed to be scary, right? <laughs> like, But having that feeling, I think I got really into it and uh, and sort of wanted to mimic it more throughout my life what i'm hearing is that young gabriel understood the brilliance of this movie and it kept yes, pulling yes. you back to it that is what i am hearing here i i think you are right <laughs> i think i think you have done what many shrinks have failed to and you have pinpointed. we've cracked it what this was all about we've understood it so did after but after you watched it were you scared after like you were, th- were you thinking about a lot did it like were you yeah, scared yeah, of yeah. it sleep or anything i don't remember if i was scared to go to sleep as much as like i remember thinking a lot about it and being freaked out about the, okay. the, the mere ideas of some of it like so like i remember thinking like i kind of apropos hereditary you know like there's that scene where he's like hiding in the ceiling again not supposed <laughs> to be scared at all but to me no. there's something so freaky about oh my god like 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 there can be like someone stuck to the ceiling and like waiting to bite me you know <laughs> Please tell me you started sleeping with garlic in the room. <laughs> well, well, I mean, like I grew up, I grew up with like a family so addicted to garlic that I felt like pretty safe anyway. Like my mom, whenever she would cook, you know, whatever she, before she even decided what she to cook, she would peel about twenty four cloves of garlic because she knew that regardless of what it was, she would probably need all of them. A so I felt like that was pretty. Yeah, there you yeah. go. So uh, I felt pretty safe in that regard, but um, but yeah, I I I mean, it was really really. I haven't rewatched it properly since at some point in my childhood and it was really funny rewatching now because i still remember all the things that freaked me out all the things that made me feel like this is you know really really fucked up and then watching it now and being like oh that's a bit <laughs> like that's a that's i mean that's a straight up bit so i i have to and we'll i mean this is a good part to transition to like when we first saw it but before we do um so rewatching it for the first time in so many years what did you think about it honestly it actually ha- i mean 
It's hard because I probably don't think it's his best work. If I'm being controversial here, and no, you know, I, I don't. I'm it's okay. sorry. I agree with that. I'm sorry, Terry. I love you so much, but I agree. <laughs> and and you know, I watched I watched like I said, I watched Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and High Anxiety a bunch when I was a kid, and I've rewatched those several times as an adult, and I would say that they really quite hold up. Like there's like some some writing and some performances there that are just remarkable. And this one, I don't really necessarily feel if it holds up as strongly. But I have, it's at the same time, it's very hard for me to watch it objectively because so it was a very like sense memory, like experience rewatching it again yeah, at the risk of yeah, getting yeah. like a bit pretentious uh, and, but also like kind of personal. So my grandmother's where my grandmother lived. So she passed away about, she passed away like late 2017. Uh, but she was again, this like really formative figure in my life. And she lived in this house that was like my childhood home. And she, she, so she lived with two men for most of her life. She oh. lived with my grandfather, and then she also lived with Finn, whom she met in the '60s, introduced by my, who's my grandfather's very close friend, and then they fell in love. And at some oh, wow. point, they sort of decided the way, the best way to live to make this work was that they would just all move in together. And so Finn bought for what was then chump change. He bought like a tiny little walk up in a working class part of Copenhagen, and they each had their little apartment. Oh, wow. And, and I grew up in that house. Like I, and I, you know, that's where I hurt my shoulder. <laughs> that's, uh, but that's also just like, it's, you know, it's, I would go there after school to do homework or to, and I loved being there so much. And the thing about the sort of the thruple of it all, I didn't even really clock until it was like 11 or 12. I would go and stay there. And I would always stay in my grandmother's room when I was there in my grandma's apartment. And I would wake up and some mornings she would, uh, you know, I would wake up and she'd be having breakfast in my grandfather's apartment. And some morning she would wake up, I would wake up and she would be having breakfast in Finn's apartment. And I didn't really understand that until I was about 12. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Wow. Um, but it was Wait, all very like, so cool. <laughs> yeah. Wait, it was so amazing. Rad. Yeah. yeah no, it was very, and it was just like a very loving household. Even my parents, my parents divorced when I was quite young. Like, I think I was barely one. And my oh. mom, still loved coming there. Like they, this is my father's family, but my mom still loved coming there and being there. It was just this house that meant it was this place where, you know, I felt very attached to it, but also we have family spread all over the world and, it, you know, everyone would come through there and we would have family parties and it, it's, it meant so much to me that place. And so when I watched that film today, rewatching it for this, Weirdly, part of the time I couldn't really focus on the movie. All I had were memories of running out into the landing between all those apartments, and like then going back into the place. And it was just, so it was it was more of, of like very physical kind of memento of this place that used to mean the world to me. I mean, still does, albeit just in memory. Um, so yeah, I also really love this movie for reasons that probably have nothing to do with the film itself. I that's amazing, that. though. That's that's such like, a cool, and that cool I story. Think, I, that's why I love movies too, of like the memories yeah. that you can, which yeah. for the better or worse, sometimes. But like, I feel like, especially when you're younger and you're watching movies yeah. with family members that are really. Cause I have similar memories with my my grandma, and it's just mm. like so cool how powerful like the, that was the, like, the effect you have and like the experience you have watching a movie like you said like you're re-watching it and you're like it's a totally different experience than anyone else is ever gonna have watching it and i think that's just so fucking cool yeah no it's 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 that thing that like 
I mean, I like, like, like the literary, the literary reference is always Proust, right? It's like the Madeline moment of like, you take, he takes a bounce of Madeline and something remembers his life. But I, I feel that so much with films. Like there are certain films that like the moment I like the title comes up or like I hear a certain line, I'm just put in a time and a place in my life immediately. And yeah. it, I mean, more so honestly than I think like, a, like, I feel like a lot of people feel that way about music, but I feel it way more strongly with films. Uh, like I had to, in prep for attachment, I wanted because I wanted that first ten minutes to have kind of a rom com feel. I rewatched a bunch of rom coms, and I, when I was like eleven, I was obsessed with When Harry Met Sally because mm. I just thought it was that to me then was like the like that was the most charming thing possible that mm-hmm. whole film. And there was something about I was rewatching it, and then at the end, his speech when he runs up to her New Year's Eve, I heard it. And the moment I heard it, I was like sitting in my dad's house, like glued against the TV watching that scene like being completely enamored with it and i it like i get it wasn't you know it wasn't at all about the rom-com it wasn't all about harry or sally it was just like oh yeah i was that was where i was in my childhood at that exact moment um so yeah that's so cool i you know i have a similar i it's hard for me like i joke about it i think this i think this movie is a fantastic movie but um i'm hard to it's hard for me to think (laughs) well it when when uh, when Kayla, the, our, our PR rep, like re- said that this was your choice, the noise I made because one, <laughs> I love this movie unabashedly. This is a comfort watch for me. This is a movie I have probably seen more than any other movie in my life, to be perfectly honest. And two, uh, because I never thought I would ever get to cover Jack the Den loving it on a podcast where we're talking about a movie that scarred a kid for life. So like the fact that it was like a twofer at this point. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And I was so excited, but I'm, it's hard for me to be objective about this film. I saw it in the movie theater when I was 14, Mm -hmm. when it came out, perfect time to go see this movie. I believe I'm not hundred percent sure, but I believe this might've been my first Mel Brooks movie. So this was my introduction to him. And it was because of this that I went and I searched out all of his previous films, some of the not so great ones like Robin Hood Men in Tights, but mm-hmm. also Blazing Saddles, which I still do not like. It was not it's not I know that's like that's, blasphemy, that's but it's it's not it's not my cup of tea. Young Frankenstein, which I think is absolutely fabulous. Okay. The history I was, of the world. I was about to be really concerned for a second. <laughs> <laughs> what you're about to say is about to really <laughs> we've been friends for years, no. but <laughs> what's the big deal? <laughs> <laughs> Young Frankenstein is shit. This movie is far superior. <laughs> no, oh, I'm, kidding. No. Hot I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, so like all the space balls, you name it. Yeah. Um, History of the world, even though I wasn't technically allowed to see it because it was rated R. I still found a way to, to get it. Like I watched all of his movies and um, I'm a huge fan. I really enjoy Mel Brooks. But I think what... Okay, so I think that one of the reasons that this movie might not be looked at so fondly is because it does look cheap. But mm. I will I will say that th- I think that that is intentional in a lot of ways because a lot of it feels like it is taking back from uh, the early uh, Universal Monster Dracula where a lot of it was just – it looked like a play. It looked like it was a stage play and there was a lot of soundstage type stuff. So I think it's pulling from that. I also think that what probably hurt it is that it's coming from – a lush production of Bram Stoker's Dracula, mm. which is immaculately designed. And so then a few, what, like three years later, yeah. we're getting this parody ostensibly about that movie. And it, it does look cheap. It looks kind of inexpensive. But I think 
I think that the people that are attached to this are giving their all for a movie that is not it doesn't just doesn't really need the kind of intensity that people bring to their roles. I think I think uh well, I mean Leslie Nielsen icon, but I think for Peter McNichol steals this movie. It's 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 amazing because he actually delivers, and I don't even think it's just on a comedy level. He delivers a more unhinged performance than Tom Waits does in the Coppola one. Like as Renfield, yes. like it's, he's like way more like visceral and out there. Yes, and I think like you could you could you could see this is sort of like maybe a recreation of his role that he did in Ghostbusters, like less mm. than a decade earlier. Because in that he's in Ghostbusters two, where he's like mm. the assistant to the 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 painting. God mm. and he's like the museum curator. Oh my god, curator. he is, isn't he? Yeah. Uh huh. He works with uh, what's who's uh, um, is it Sigourney Vigo. Weaver? Uh, yeah, and Sigourney Weaver. Yes. He kidnaps Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, he Sigourney. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's kind of like iterating on that performance, but he is taking it to a whole new level. And every single time he is on on film, I am just smiling from ear to ear because his like the the lines that he delivers when you talked about the the scary moment of when the women are like floating into his room and i quote that all the time he's like what are you doing to the furniture (laughs) (laughs) followed up by like this is wrong this is wrong and then wrong me wrong me wrong It's it's so silly and it's so absurd but it just it always it never fails to bring a smile to my face so every single time I'm like in a bad mood or I'm sad or something, I will probably pop this on and I will be happy by the end of it. Cause it just, it brings me back to a time and place. And it, it's sort of like what you're talking about. Just like that, that kind of muscle memory yeah. of, of seeing this. And it's again, the score, the score to this movie is better than it has any right to be that opening theme with the, the credits and stuff. It's, it's bringing me to like, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, mm. but it's, it's so lush and it's so, I don't know, gothic that I'm just like, this, this movie does not deserve this score. <laughs> right. And I think there's a weird, I mean, I actually, it's funny hearing you talk about it is also bringing out a lot of things that I really did appreciate about watching it. And part of it is like, I think the thing that maybe at the time had felt cheap now seems inconceivably expensive, right? Like hand painted backdrops. Yeah. Matt's, yeah. Matte paintings. And yeah, you'd, ne- you'd never get that. I'm watching now. I was like, oh my God, that's like old movie. Man. Like it's, I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and that's something I appreciated. I think watching it again. So I, I don't have, I actually watched it for the first time a couple months. Mm. How long ago? I can't even remember. Probably how long, like a year, half a year ago. Half a year ago. I watched it for the Maybe. first time because we were covering horror mm. comedies on like another little podcast. And I watched this and was like, okay, like I get it. I don't think it's as smart as some of his other movies, but I also like mm. I, I also love it because Terry loves it so much. So I think that mm-hmm. like gives me a deep appreciation for it. But it really it it emulates the Universal slash Hammer monster movie mm-hmm. aesthetic so mm. well that are like look really pretty, but also kind of cheap if you look a little too hard at it. And like even just like <laughs> it, the when they are putting the garlic in Mina's room. <laughs> it reminds me so much of um of a va- like a lesbian vampire hammer movie that I cannot remember the title of, but it looks just like that. And I'm like, I don't know if that was what he was trying to do, but he really does nail the hammer yeah. the hammer aesthetic vampire movie so well. And I that's I think I appreciate that so much and like what it's doing with the a- aesthetics of it all. I just, I don't, it's it's funny. I just don't think it's as smart as things like Blazing Saddles. And like, 
and that's fine. Like, not everything mm. has to be smart. Like, Mel Brooks, this was his last, what, this last movie he directed, right? He was just probably like, I'm fucking done being funny. Like, I'm just like, I'm tired. Um, but still, I do appreciate it. I do. It's unhinged. And I appreciate an unhinged, unhinged experience so much. So it much. It also does a thing that I really, um, it's a, a type of humor that I personally really love and I don't think we get enough of, which is like, the you know, the joke is, a lot funnier the fourth time you tell it than the first time yes, you tell it. Yes, the repetition. <laughs> like, like, I She absolutely... will become one herself. <laughs> what? <laughs> she will become one herself. Also, like, the faux, the faux Romanian they speak is like, Varush, or whatever they keep saying. <laughs> yes. Or, like, Mel like, Brooks's accent, like, Brooklyn accent comes through so much, too. It's so good. I was like, I love so it. It's so I mean, good. I was even listening to some of those, like, I was like, like I, some of those words are Yiddish. Like, some of those words are 100% Yiddish. Uh, but also, I just, I like, there's there's so many. I mean, the, 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 the garlic joke is sort of almost its own version of it, where, like, there's just so... So much garlic. There's just the sheer abundance. The sight gag of the it's abundance beautiful. of garlic is so good. It's so good. And like, or when he sticks his head in the window and he's yeah. like, Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> there's so much garlic. <laughs> My favorite also, joke this time was when he said, I'm also a gynecologist. Oh, I didn't know you had your hand in that, <laughs> too. <laughs> like, they're so dumb. Like, they're such, like, kind of, like, base jokes <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I still laughed I don't care like there's still something funny about just like the subtlety of it like oh I didn't know you had your hand in that goes to the next thing and you're like wait I'm sorry what did you like it's something about and I don't watch nearly enough comedies anymore so like it was very refreshing just to watch something that's just unabashedly silly as shit and it's just so, so fun so dumb even the like enema joke the Harvey Corman joke with, and like the first time you're like uh, okay and the second time you're like it's pretty fun. By the fourth time, he like he refers to an enema, like, okay, great, yes. Or when he's like deciding when to give an enema. Yes. No, give him an enema. Put him in the strict jack, then give him an enema. It'll give him a sense of purpose or something like that. It's like, so put on that. And I'll be honest, that sent me on like a Google spiral. I was like, do people use enemas? Like, oh, I was like. What's about to come out of your mouth, Terry? I was like, what is his obsession with enemas? I was like, is there like a historical like joke here, you know, of like hospitals using that to cure? And I couldn't find anything. I think of it's course, probably like, just I think it's probably just a butt joke. I think it's just kind yeah. of an immature butt joke, unfortunately. I'm thinking way too in no, depth about the enema no. joke and Dracula Denla. Yeah, but I say Yeah. But it's funny because like I'm just realizing now as we're talking, so I had in attachment there's this scene in a forest and there's like this joke that's made like four times about like how what a strange like it's a it's a really weird place to meet and <laughs> when we were shooting that scene i went out to david who had to do the bit and he was like you know i mean you're really repeating this joke a lot of times and i was like no but i don't think you get it like it's not really funny until the fourth time. <laughs> like it's it's only kind of funny. It's the fourth time you say it that it'll be really funny. And I'm realizing now, I was like, yeah, it's, that's like it's what that's what they're doing in Dracula and Loving. Like all the best jokes are really they're really hitting home the fourth or fifth time they make it. Hell yeah! The psychic impact this movie had on you—you you didn't <laughs> okay, even I know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I had brought this up when we, because when Mary Beth had said we have like a little um, mini sode that we do where we talk about various movies we watch, whatever. Mm. And I remember when we watched this 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 movie, and I just lost what I was going to say. Wow, <laughs> just went gone. Love that. But, <laughs> but 
there there are moments in here that I think uh, oh that's what it was. This movie I think is defined kind of like my idea of humor. I have a very mm. weird sense of humor, but like a lot of times when I watch a movie that's funny, I'll be like, oh, that's funny. I'll like admit that it's funny, but I won't laugh. <laughs> like it's so weird. Unless I'm in like a communal experience, like in a movie theater, if yeah. everyone's laughing, I will probably join on. But if I'm watching something by myself, I will hardly ever laugh. But afterwards I'll be like, that was a really funny movie, but I won't have yeah. laughed at all. But like there are certain things it's just it's absurdity. There is this takes the idea of like a joke to the most absurd level. So it's not just like a joke about uh, Van Helsing grossing out his assistants. He is pulling out, you know, organs. He is putting a brain in someone's hand. Like it is just like it takes it to as far as it possibly can go. And but there's also like moments of of um, reversal of expectations where like when when Renfield is in uh, the, the the asylum and the flap opens up in the door and he's like, hey, Renfield, how are you doing? He's like, I can't take it anymore. The walls are closing in on me. I've got to get out of here. And it turns out he's a guard. Like, <laughs> it's so funny because you assume he's like another patient there. And no, he's just a guard that's like, I can't take it anymore. But so there's that or it's like the line where Dracula is staring at um, at Lucy's bosom. But he's like, mm. you have a, such a lovely occipital mapillary. Like, and it's this little moment, this little part where like the collarbone is is open, and so there's just like these little tiny things that I think are just like you don't expect it to happen, and right. he manages to like pull that rug out and just make it something that it's not, and I I think that that is something that this movie doesn't get a lot of credit for. <laughs> no, I, I think I think that's true, and I also think like I mean I'm I'm really I'm really into like the whole like reappreciation aspect of uh, of this conversation because like I really actually I do think that it does a lot of things more sharply than I probably got credit for at the time. Cause it also sort of, I mean, even like near the end, right. When the, when the bat, like the bat has been fried into ashes and he like scoops <laughs> it up and he puts it on. <laughs> and then he does the smiley, so which I thought watching that now, that bit, I was like, that is genius. I was that is cackling. so good. I was, I was cackling very hard. Yeah, you're starting to look like your old self again. <laughs> <laughs> Part of what works so well about it. And I think maybe this sort of ties into why, you know, in this sort of fun psychoanalytical session that we're having now, this maybe has been like a really formative experience for me. <laughs> like, the reason that that joke works so well is that it actually feels weirdly genuine. Like, there's something yeah. like, really weirdly, like, humanly sad about him, like, making that smiley in the ashes, <laughs> like, scoop, carefully scooped up on. And I think, I think the whole film, at least as I, especially as I experienced it then, that feeling of experiencing as though it was genuinely scary when it was scary, mm. even though that, you know, I now see that wasn't the point. And then genuinely funny when it's trying to be funny, which I, it was trying to be. I think a lot of the films that I've come to love and something that I sort of tried to do with like, the attachment, my first feature as well, is like film horror among them, but mall films like, you can actually kind of get away with doing a bunch of things at once if you really mean every bit of it, right? Like, yeah. like if you want, like the great horror comedies, for instance, have that quality. Like, like I guess most recently, some like Barbarian has that quality. Like, it is extremely funny when it is funny, and it is ex yeah. extremely scary when it is scary, and it really means it when it is both. And yeah. while my experience with Dracula didn't let me get, may have been, you know, not fully representative of. Mel Brooks's intentions. That was how I felt watching it. And that moment near the end with that little smiley, I still feel that that feels weirdly 
genuine. Like that is a truly yeah. weird emotional beat at the end. And that's what makes it so funny. Yeah. I, I think there's a sense of earnestness to this movie. Yeah. I think that there is a, a genuine love of the vampire film and a genuine love of uh, universal hammer and Coppola's version of Dracula that I think mm. comes through in here. And I think that genuineness is what I think probably, you know, it, it immediately pulled me, even though I couldn't put words to it when as a kid, because this could have been, let's, let's face it. This could have been just a, a cheapo production mm. of like, and them not even trying, you know, let's just quickly get a parody of Dracula out there and, yeah. you know, people just go see it. No one ended up going to see this, but that's another, that's, <laughs> that's a completely different story. But I, I I think there is a sense of, of genuineness here that I think comes out in the performances. I think everyone is trying their hardest mm. to to do to do the performance. In fact, this was the first time that I've actually appreciated Steven Weber's performance in a movie mm. because his Harker, his the his vocal mannerisms, like there's that part. First of all, I love that he represents this sort of um, idea of Victorian England, where it was like the, everyone is so repressed. And so we, we can't have well, any... And having lived in London for a long time, modern England as well. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I love how like all the men are completely stupid in this movie. All the women are voluptuous and they're <laughs> discovering sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, to to that degree, Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, where mm. the men are completely useless and the women are talking about, you know, sex and like having all these kind of sexual fantasies and reading a book on Kama Sutra and that kind of stuff. Like there is there is that dichotomy here that I think is is so it's, it's a more of a subtle part of it. Huh. But the fact that like he is talking, there's like a quote that I wrote down when he when we first meet Harker. He's talking about the opera is fraught with love, hate, sensuality, and bridal passion. All the things in my life I've managed to suppress. Like, <laughs> the way he delivers that line, and then later how uncomfortable he is around Lucy when she is being very, you know, sexually aggressive toward him. And he makes this, like, uh, 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 like, sound <laughs> that I cannot get right. But he does that a couple times toward the end. He does that when, when Lucy first comes on to him. And then after he has driven the stake through her bloody heart and is filled with geysers of blood and he makes that sound again it's just i'm like this guy is actually doing a really great job in this movie that's true and also i think like in terms of what you're saying that people, everyone's giving their all like everyone actually genuinely seems to be having fun like mm -hmm. that whole like kind of cottage industry in the 90s and then again like a new version of it in the 2000s where everything had to be a spoof right like mm -hmm. a lot of those especially when you watch them now you're like oh man like people are just really needing a paycheck here but mm -hmm. everyone in watching like watching this, everyone actually seems to be having fun. I think everyone seems to be a little bit thrilled about being in a Mel Brooks movie, you know, like there's yeah. like, and, and I think some of the things that we also experience maybe as like cheat or low budget, some of it also just has like kind of a vaudevillian quality yeah. to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's sort of, it has like kind of a Borscht Belt kind of dumb zinger after dumb zinger, but it's sort of charming and fun to watch. And I think, again, I think maybe I might need a bit more time with it before I can say that I think it's a, good good movie sort of in a sort of qualitative sense yeah but it's a really enjoyable movie yeah and a lot of those movies from the like a lot of those spoof movies from the 90s like don't necessarily have that quality no yeah exactly no they don't but i i will say i think there are a couple uh deep cuts in this like i love first of all Anne bancroft shows up oh, as uh, the, uh, the yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will shield you. It will shield you from the lurking danger. 
I, I love that. But I love that her Harry, name is, is Madame. One, you gotta do a one-man show of just the entire movie of Dracula Dead and Loving It. Here's the thing. As I was taking notes for this movie, I was literally writing the quotes down before they were said. Yeah, of course like, you were. You nerd. That is how much I know this movie. I was literally writing lines down. I was like, did I get this line right? And then they say, like, yep, I got it right. Like, that is literally... I don't know what that says about me, but like that is that is literally how I how I view this movie. But but she's kind of a deep cut character, dude, because her her name is Madame Ospinkaya <laughs> or something like that. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her last name, and they only say it once. But she, but that is um, an homage to Maria Ospinkaya, who was an actress, a Russian actress that she was in Hollywood films, but she played kind of the Romani Romani fortune teller in. The Wolfman, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. In like a bunch of like the Rains Came, Waterloo Bridge. Like she was a a famous like Russian actress, but she played a lot of the Romani fortune teller type roles. And so it's kind of a deep cut there that her name is not even mentioned once. It's not even brought up attention. And it's it's just like there. So like you know that there is a deep love for Universal Monster movies. Oh, that's great. I had no idea. Yeah. That is that's uh that's such that's such a cool uh that's such a cool factoid. And also another example, like the joke is even funnier the second time she does it. Like it's such a good. Yes. <laughs> or the repeating of scheduled. Yes. <laughs> scheduled. <laughs> I was watching it. It's funny. I was watching it with, uh, with captions. Cause I've gotten into that habit of doing that now with most Me too. Oh yeah. Same. And it sort of spelled out schedule in this weird way. I was like, why did it spell out schedule that way? And then the <laughs> joke came. And for some reason it just made it funnier. Like it set up the joke <laughs> even more for me. But what did you think on a second watch? Well, it's probably more like, it's probably, realistically, it's more like my fourth or fifth, but it's my first time watching it since I was, I can't have been more than eight or nine since I last saw it. Like, yeah. so in any meaningful sense, yeah, probably my second time watching it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, again, so there was that whole sense memory aspect of it. Like I did, mm-hmm. I, watching it was a lot of an experience of like being transported to another place another time. I think I have grown with age. I have grown such a fondness for that kind of vaudevillian quality like i kind of i think if i'd watched this eight years ago i think i would have been like oh this is like a lesser mill brooks movie and like every every joke is so like loud and silly and watching it now mm-hmm. i'm like i am kind of into there's 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 an old world quality to this that yeah. i miss and that i yeah. really enjoy tapping into watching it and then yeah i just noticed myself also appreciating like we said like again like like hand-painted backdrops and like mm-hmm. the feeling like i i kind of i'm i know that this isn't very fashionable i really love it when i watch a movie and i can tell that it's on a set and that's not because my own movie was on a set because that one i'd ideally have people not notice but i love that quality i like i yeah. love it when movies feel like movies and in some way it's an incredibly old-fashioned movie right like for film that came out in like the mid 90s it already feels so old for its time and that i think is a, like that's like a feature not a bug it makes it yeah. feel really romantic mm-hmm. and it makes all those very old school jokes feel really at home in it. Um, and so, yeah, I think again, hard for me to necessarily say that I think it's a qualitatively good film, but it has a lot of qualities that I really, that it put a big smile on my face watching it. Like yeah. I would like to see more films like it, even whether or not it's a good movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and Mary Beth, I know this is your sec- second time watching this movie. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. What, did you have any thoughts on this on this watch now that you've you've seen it and it's like you kind of know what to expect? Um so I think I think something that 
and it's actually kind of quick, Gabriel, as you're talking about it. Like, I keep forgetting it was made in 1995. I keep thinking it is made in, like, the 80s or the 70s. Like, mm. the look of it is very retro. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And again, like, it looks like those Hammer movies. So I think that is a really interesting aspect to it, that I think it hits that aesthetic really well. And if you aren't as familiar with that aesthetic, it's going to go over your head. And like we've talked about, yeah. look cheap. And like, I think that's part of the charm of this, though. Like, I think it's trying to both make fun of the opulence of the previous one while also paying homage to what sets looked like in these Hammer horror films when like Dracula was christopher lee and the blood mm. looked like orange rather than red <laughs> and like it was kind of cheesy but also really beautiful and there was just something about the quality of it and that is so special that makes me love hammer movies even now even though a lot of them are dated like there's something about them that are so beautiful like and they have such like an mm. a, a strong aesthetic point of view if you will and so Watching this movie capture that in a way that I don't think I've really seen in other films, because I don't think a lot of films tackle like the hammer horror aesthetic at all. And I wish they did. Mm. I really do wish they did, because I think it is such a cool aesthetic that you can play with. But I think that's something I really appreciated so much more this time around. I wasn't, I kind of knew when the jokes were coming, um, or kind of right. like knew the jokes. Mm. So I wasn't as paying much attention to the sense of humor rather than that, as well as kind of, and I, I just watched Dracula. We watched Bram Stoker's Dracula recently. So that was like mm-hmm. on the top of my head too. So I was doing more like side, you know, comparisons to that um, because Bram Stoker's Dracula is one of the my hat. favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite movies. So yeah. It's, it's also kind of an amazing movie. Like I'm, I, I, I think Bram Stoker's Dracula has this, it has one of those like big swing qualities. And like some people feel it's a big swing and a miss. Some people feel it's a big swing and a hit. But like it has this thing of like, it's such an ambitious, wild and huge, like crazy, you know, it also went notoriously over budget and over schedule and everything. But I think if they're fun, they're fun counterpoint in that sense as well, right? Like one of them is like this work of absolute excess. And the other one is like, you know, we're going to, we're going to really nail what feels like this kind of very like paired back quality but they're sort of related in this weird deeper sense as well yeah yeah well and i honestly i think that going back to kind of what you were saying mary beth and and what i said earlier in the in the episode i think that maybe the kind of attention to detail of the 1930s and the 1970s Mm. dracula movie might have kind of bit it in the butt a bit mm-hmm. because if you look at it the budget for this movie was big it was 30 million dollars oh, 30 million dollar that's dollars right so that's got yeah, that's 90 dollars yeah so 90 30 million dollars in the in 1995 and yeah i mean you could say that there's like a lot of cast members that um were, were i don't know how big they were but like Steven Weber was having like success in the nineties, you know, Leslie Nielsen had done all the spoofs in like the late eighties, early nineties as well. So I, I'm not sure how much of it went to like paychecks or whatnot, but that is a huge budget for something that does not look very expensive. You know Mm. what I mean? And I think that that was an intention on Mel Brooks's part because he wanted to, again, represent those earlier Dracula films. And so part of me is like, gosh, I wonder what this would have looked like if you had just made a a parody of Bram Stoker's Dracula and you went with Mm. opulence, but then you had that kind of humor. I'm wondering what that would have looked like. But I I honestly think that that a lot of the kind of fly by the seat of your pants design of this, this movie was intentional in a way, but I I, I know we're, we're getting close to wrapping up, but I just, there's, there's two jokes we haven't really touched on. Two sequences that I think are my absolute favorite. <laughs> and one, so a little backstory. Um, my roommate 
Her name is Cass. She has a dog. His name is Riggins. He's a terrier corgi mix, and he is a grumpy old man. And <laughs> when when people come to the to the door or packages get dropped off and like he doesn't see them, he will make the sound like, Whoa! and then he'll be like, Whoa! 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 and he'll go studying down the stairs to go like, oh, those kids, angry kids are get off my lawn, like type, then he'll start barking at the door. But the, the, the noise he makes before that is a sort of, Whoa! and every single time he does it, I always think back to the raspberry scene with with Renfield and Dr. Seward, because Dr. Seward has this sort of like raspberries. We're not serving raspberries, <laughs> but he makes that <laughs> sound. And it sounds just like Riggins's sound of annoyance that I will. Anytime he does that, I will probably start quoting this movie because it just, it brings <laughs> me back to seeing this movie as a kid and just laughing at, at Dr. Seward's very like mannerisms. And that scene I think is, is a, is a perfect scene that encapsulates my my sense of humor of the like absurdity taken to the nth degree because he's he's grabbing spiders he's grabbing uh crickets he's he's going to get grasshoppers off the ground and he's trying to pass it off as like a raspberry or as you know a, a, raisin, a raisin or something and it's just it's it's so it's so fucking silly that i love it's, it it's so it's that is actually a genuinely like amazing physical comedy sequence especially when he throws the fork yes <laughs> 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 But also, also just like this, like the commitment to the bit of like, you know, like a lot of cons be like, oh, okay. But like Harvey Corman actually goes like, no, you didn't. I saw you talking about that. Yeah, I, was yeah, like, no, no, I saw okay. you. You did that. And I think that's what makes it so funny is that he is playing yeah. it dead serious. He is playing Dr. Seward as if he is like Watson from the yeah. old Sherlock Holmes movies. It's sort of like that is who he is. <laughs> he is enveloping in this character, but he is playing it dead serious as Peter McNichol is doing his damnedest like to be. grasshopper leg dangling out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah. He's trying to <laughs> <laughs> it's just that it's that absurdity mixed with like a character that is trying to be as earnest and as like no i am i'm yeah. being method i am being here and i'm method. taking this seriously <laughs> that's what it comes across <laughs> as well peter mcnichol is like just what can i do to be fucking make insane him break. here what can i do to make him break yeah basically is, is your second as your second bit that you want to highlight is that uh, the one, because otherwise I will do it now. The one where he's like trying to throw them off the scent. Where he's what? I'm sorry. Trying to where Peter Van trying to throw everyone off the scent. Like, are they going to? Are they going to try to follow <laughs> <Yeah>. me? <laughs> just like I love that. Then stops. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Runs, stops, runs to another little bit, stops, runs another bit. There. <laughs> it's so, so, so beautiful. <laughs> I, I, that scene, no, I, I, I actually should include that scene. I completely <laughs> lost my, it went out of my train of thought. But no, the one that I was thinking of is when Dracula is trying to get, I think it's Mina, out of her bed. And the oh nurse is God. there. Sit up. And he hypnotizes both of them. Sit down. Mina, you are in the closet. <laughs> Go back. <laughs> and then he like leaves with the nurse realizer and when he take, when he actually leaves with many like you know he like runs through the whole bit pretty quickly. <laughs> But it's it's the physical again the physical comedy of him being like trying to contr mentally control two people and none of them are doing what he wants. He's like, come to the door, and so the nurse, no, not you, sit, and then they both sit, stand, and, and it, it's just it's it's such a it's so dumb, but it is played so well that I just it's one of my favorite scenes. Hell yeah! All right, well, yeah. shall we wrap up and give this our rating out of five, Terry? Yeah, I because I, I could I honestly could talk about this movie all night long. <laughs> So, Terry, how many raspberries do you give Dracula Dead? I'm loving it. 
Uh, five. Shocking. <laughs> I love this. Shocking. I love this movie so much, and I, I I understand that it's not everyone's cup of tea. And I understand that for a lot of people, this is not top tier Mel Brooks. But for me, this is his best movie. <laughs> I love the tape. I appreciate the tape. <laughs> And I, again, so I, I can't be objective about it. It's something that I saw as a as a fourteen year old that I fell in love with, and was constantly renting it uh, at Blockbuster um, all the time. I would watch it over and over and over again. I probably wore out at least one copy of Blockbuster's tapes with this because I just I loved it so much. And over years, it has become my comfort film that I will go back to whenever I'm feeling down or if I need to pick me up or if I'm not doing anything, like I'm just going to throw a movie on, it will probably mm. be this movie. Cause I just, I don't know. There's something about it that just, it speaks to me. So I'm so glad you brought this. This is a five Rossbury's movie for me. I love it. What about you, Mary Beth? I'm gonna don't give, give it, it a one, please. No, I'm going to give it a three, <laughs> a three Rossbury's because it's not okay. It's not my favorite Mel Brooks movie, but I really, really do love, especially if you're talking about it, like love what it's, it is a little bit ahead of its time and what it is trying to, and what it is trying to spoof, or maybe it's too much in the past. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Like it is mm. going maybe too far back in the nineties for people to fully appreciate. Like hammer, hammer horror just feels so niche to me, like even in the nineties mm. and like you, and we've talked about that, but like just thinking about that and appreciating it. Um, makes this a like a, a a special movie, and I love how much Terry loves it. But I also I just I love Leslie Nielsen. I just think he is like the dumbest, funniest dude. So seeing <laughs> so him make, seeing him take like this sexy figure of Dracula and make him an absolute <laughs> buffoon is just incredible. And like he does it in the best way because he has like a suave vibe, but also a very chaotic one, and it fits making Dracula into a buffoon very much. And so, yeah, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it three. Two quick points, though. One, <laughs> oh my god, are you um, fighting love... me right now? <laughs> are you fighting? No, 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 no. No, you just what you said just reminded me of two things that like I absolutely <laughs> love about this. There's the line where he says, "Yes, I like it." Where uh, Peter Nick- McNichol is like. Oh, dusty, isn't it? And he's like, yes, I like it. I will find myself saying, yes, I like it to the most random things when people say something to me. Just that's just what popped in my head. And the other thing, I love how unabashedly they do not care that there is a stuntman playing him mm. when he's like doing the dance. Like uh-huh. his face is in full view. And it's obviously not Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> like I'm okay. trying to like mask his face. It is like that man is not Leslie Nielsen and he is throwing this woman around. I just love I just anyway. Sorry, Mary Beth. Well, Gabriel, also, you would. Oh, sorry. It's raspberries. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> uh, yes. Right. Sorry. Yes. Oh, in terms of well, just just one, just like off the Leslie Nelson thing. Also, something I realized, I actually appreciate about it is like, it's not that Leslie Nelson plays his other like in the Naked Gun or things like that. He plays his role straight necessarily, but like he has a delivery in a way that I think he starts out doing an airplane, which is like weirdly kind of the comedy lies in how plain his delivery is of the lines Mm -hmm. compared to how weird everything going on is, you know? And like Mm -hmm. part of what makes him such a great like bumbling idiot in the Naked Gun movies is that he like he weirdly plays it shockingly straight, except for when it's physical comedy. A straight man but not but not. Like it's it's so weird. And then in Dracula like all that goes out the window and he's like got an accent and it's all like really big and flamboyant. And I think that's something I really appreciate about it. Um, so in terms of how many, uh, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can deliver the, 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 the raspberries. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. Um, raspberries. Raspberries. <laughs> uh, I think 
I think for reasons that I don't know if have much to do with the film itself, I'm going to have to give it five as well. Because I don't know how I could give it four or three or two. And I definitely don't want to give it one. But there's like, it like awoken too many things in me watching it. And like, I, there's something about it that even just talking about it makes me appreciate it so much more that giving it anything short of five uh, just seems dishonest at this point. <laughs> even if just like on an emotional level. So Hell yeah. I'll take that because I know my five is an emotional level too. So I'll take that. Uh, thank you so much, Gabriel, for joining us and bringing absolute pleasure Dracula Dead and loving it to us. Uh, where can our listeners find you? Are you on social media? And um, do you have anything that you can talk about or share? The floor is yours. I I I have no social media, which is probably a bad idea. But I've just decided to stay away from it uh, many yeah, many years ago, better. and I stuck stuck with it. Um, it's probably not doing my career any service, but. Um, um, and I, everything I'm working on right now is like in such early stages that I probably shouldn't talk too much about it. Um, if, if for no other reason than out of superstition that I'll like, you know, gotcha. Yep. Uh, unravel it by talking too much about it. Um, but, uh, but you can see attachment on Shudder. Uh, and I hope that people go and do that. And then I hope that I'll return with something else for everyone to watch before too long. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right, listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Dracula, Dead and Loving It? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And if you want to help support us, we do have a Patreon with a bunch of content on there. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. Most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. When you pick up some scratches, cause you want a fun break. The playful way you scratch is the next choice you should make. You can make your dog's leg kick and scratch with that. You could even grab a laser pointer and use your cap. You could build yourself a homemade scratching machine. Or use a piece from your chest set. Go ahead, grab the queen. Scratch like a DJ with your record player. A cactus could scratch off that scratchable layer. Cause when it comes to scratching, there's a million playful ways. Thanks to scratches from the California lottery, a little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase, play, or claim. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room.
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>